invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our main focus today is going to be on verse 13, but I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 for context here in just a moment, so if you'll make your way there. We're beginning a new series today entitled The Spirit-Filled Life with a message on what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. An interesting quirk in scientific history is the debate over who should get the credit for discovering oxygen. Joseph Priestley, an English scientist and clergyman, is often given the honor because he was the first to publish his findings, doing so in 1774. He originally called the gas deflagistigated air. It's much more simple now that we simply refer to it as oxygen. However, in 1772, two years prior to Priestley's find, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele independently discovered the gas that is vital to our existence. Strangely enough, the term oxygen didn't actually come into use until 1775 when yet another chemist, Frenchman Antoine Lavoisier, discovered and named the gas that we breathe. Lavoisier was the first to recognize oxygen as one of our natural elements. And regardless of who should get the credit, it sounds rather odd that we say that oxygen was discovered. Does a fish discover water? Oxygen literally surrounds us every day, and we cannot live without it. And there's a parallel to be drawn here, spiritually speaking, in that the Holy Spirit's presence and work in our lives as Christians should be evident to us, and we should experience the power of it, but many times we don't recognize or understand exactly what God makes available to us through his Spirit. So as we approach the Easter season and ultimately Resurrection Sunday, we are going to be focusing on the cross, but our emphasis for the next few weeks is on the Spirit-filled life. And in that sense, we're not following a liturgical calendar since we've already arrived at Pentecost and the effects thereof. But we realize that the spirit-filled life comes to us in power because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, because of the power of his resurrection and what took place on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion and controversy that exists surrounding the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may seem mystical to us. We can easily identify with the truth of God as our Father because we understand what and who an earthly Father is. We can identify with God the Son because He took on flesh and dwelt among us and we read about the record of His life on the earth. But when we come to the Holy Spirit, we may draw a blank or identify with some symbols that we have commonly seen. Symbols like a dove or wind or fire, some of the things that come from the scripture. So we need to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. God is the eternal triune God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. So we can rightly say that God is one in essence, 
and he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal. I want to share with you a brief excerpt from the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 2, on God the Holy Spirit, our statement of faith. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. At the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. He seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. We will have four messages in this series. The first today, what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's begin reading here in 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 12, and we'll go through verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, reminded them that we are baptized by one spirit. What he has in view here is spiritual baptism. And when he references all, he's referencing all followers of Jesus. So he's talking about us collectively as the people of God. He says we are one body. Even though there is great diversity, there are differences among us regarding our backgrounds, our appearance, our function. We have a common root and we have a common destination. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, as a foundation for both this message and this series, I want to give to you what I would consider a mini-theology of the Holy Spirit. This is not exhaustive in content, but it gives us an overview of how the Holy Spirit has worked and is working in our lives. And then we'll look specifically at verse 13. The Holy Spirit was present and active in creation. Genesis 1 in verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters or over the face of the deep. The Holy Spirit was the active agent in the superintending of the Bible to be written. 2 Peter 1 in verse 21 says, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man, Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along or or moved along by the Holy Spirit. 
we have God's revelation to us because God breathed out his word to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present in the tabernacle and the temple, manifesting the presence and the glory of God. Second Chronicles 7, at the dedication of the temple, it says when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from the sky and burned up the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This was the visible presence of God in his glory, and I'll talk a little bit more about that before I'm done today. It was foretold that the presence of the Holy Spirit would bring blessings from God. Isaiah 44, God says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry land. Verse 3, I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. It was Jesus who promised that the Holy Spirit would be given by God the Father after the work of Jesus was finished on the cross. In John 14, beginning in verse 16, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Jesus continues in John 16 and verse 7, and he says, Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Jesus indicated in part what the work of the Holy Spirit would include in the very next verse in John 16 and verse 8. He said, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the promises of Jesus in regards to the Holy Spirit uh, were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the New Testament church was born. Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, verse 1, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I believe those different tongues that are referenced here were actual languages. I believe it was a communication of the gospel and that God supernaturally empowered these people to be able to communicate the gospel to the different people who had gathered there in Jerusalem so that when Peter's message was preached and the gospel was proclaimed, there were thousands of people who were saved by the power of the Spirit. Wayne Grudem said the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. This definition indicates that the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity whom the scripture most often represents as being present to do God's work in the world. So as Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, he convicts and then he converts. And in all of his ministry, his role is to glorify Jesus, to point to Jesus, to exalt the truth of God, both in the word of God written and the word of God living. So in these few moments that we have together, what I want us to do is I want us to consider three aspects of what takes place in our lives when we trust in Jesus 
and when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think of these things happening essentially all at once in the moment of salvation. Now, I know that we like to think about things being in a linear progression from A to B to C, and and sometimes that's proper. But in what happens to us when we are saved, there are some things that happen to us in the moment of redemption, in the moment of salvation. And what happens is we are brought from death to life, we are sealed for the day of redemption, and we are indwelled within. First, when we trust in Jesus, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and we are brought from death to life. Now, we cannot stand in the presence of God on our own because of our sin. That's our problem. Prior to salvation, the Bible says that we were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. We were desperate and without hope. We had no peace with God on our own. To be born again means that we become new creatures in Christ. And what happens is God and his mighty power are the source of that transformation. You remember Jesus told Nicodemus that a man must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God? Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And what is taking place in our salvation when we are brought from death to life is that spirit is giving birth to spirit. There's a famous song that many of you are either old enough to remember or you've heard it because it's appeared in movies and other aspects of pop culture. And it's the song, Dust in the Wind. It has an interesting background. It was sung by the group Kansas. It actually peaked at number six on the Billboard 100 in 1978. And then it surfaced in various movies throughout the years. The title of that song actually comes from a biblical reference in the book of Ecclesiastes. The lyrics are in part, now don't hang on, nothing lasts forever but the earth and the sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. The song was written by the group's guitarist, Carrie Livgren. It set him on a path to consider the true value of material things and the meaning of success. He said at that time, no matter our possessions or accomplishments, we all end up back in the ground. Livgren became interested in the cultic book entitled Urantia, which actually claims divine revelation. It has some biblical overtones, but it's way off. And in his interest in this book and other religious writings, uh, he began, because he was thinking about these things, to have discussions with people around him. And he got into debates regularly on the tour bus with a man by the name of Jeff Pollard. Jeff Pollard was part of the opening act for Kansas on that particular tour. And they're arguing about whether this religious book that he had become enamored with or the Bible was the accurate portrayal of the life of Jesus. Livgren eventually became convinced that, in fact, Pollard's Bible was true. And he was going to have to admit it. He was going to have to make a choice. And then he said, I quote, Another part of me kept saying, My God, you can't become a Christian. What would everybody think? The last thing in the world I wanted to be was one of those fanatical, born-again Christians. 
Well, on July 23rd of 1979, Kansas was playing in the city of Indianapolis. There was a Christian fan who attended the concert who later told Livgren that he had felt compelled to pray for him during the show. And he prayed so hard that when he left the concert, he was in tears. Later that night, about 3 a.m. on July 24th in his hotel room, Livgren, with his religious books and the Bible spread all around him and tears flowing from his eyes, prayed this. He said, Lord, if Jesus Christ is your son, then I want to know him. If he really is the living God, my Redeemer and my Lord, then I want to serve him with all my heart. At that second, Livgren says that the Holy Spirit overcame him. And he was laughing and crying. And he said, and I quote again, he, I felt that the huge weight on my shoulders was suddenly taken away forever. I was full and overflowing. Now, what was he describing? He was describing the experience of being born again. Now, everybody's experience is not filled with emotion like that. Our experience is not based on emotion ultimately. It's based on truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and our response to that in repentance and faith. But God got a hold of him, and he got a hold of him so much that he began down a path that would cause him to separate from much of his former life and even many of the people that he had been identified with because his life had been changed. He had been born again. I hope today that you know with confidence that there has been a point in your life where you have been born again. It's not enough just to have Uh, respect for religion or to know about God or to say verbally that you believe these truths about Jesus Christ. But there has to be a moment in your life where you recognize that you are lost, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. There is nothing you can do on your own to make your way back to God. And you trust in Christ by faith and he saves you. Listen to how Titus 3 and verse 5 describes it. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. A physical birth brings us into the earthly realm. A spiritual birth brings us into the heavenly realm. We all have been born into the physical realm because we're alive. We have physical life. But not necessarily has everyone been born into the spiritual realm. And I want to encourage you today as you consider the truth about Christ and what God does for you and what he has accomplished for you on the cross and in the resurrection, that if you have not been born again and God is bringing you to that point where you'd say, I know that I've not been saved. I know that I'm not a Christian. I know that if I were to die tonight, I would not go to heaven to be with God. And that today would be the day of salvation for you. And then second, when we trust in Jesus, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and sealed for the day of redemption. A seal referred to an identifying mark placed on a letter or contract or an important document. Ephesians 1 and verse 13 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Now, we don't use seals as much as maybe they were used 
historically, but certain lines of work certainly still use them. If you were to request a certified copy of your birth certificate, for example, I just did that the other day for uh, one of our children for some legal documentation that we needed. And uh, when I got that birth certificate back, it had a raised seal on it that was confirmation that it was in fact genuine. It, It was the real thing. And in those days, the method of sealing a papyrus document was to roll it into a tube, tie a strand or cord around the center, and then seal a clay lump over the knot. Uh, Impressing a dollop of wax against the lip of an envelope, for example, with the king's signet ring, would reassure the recipient of the contents. A seal would show that what was in the letter came from the person that it was reportedly from, and whose seal was on the outside. Now let's think about this from a spiritual standpoint and from a biblical standpoint. In the Old Testament, God put a seal on his people to set them apart and to keep them. In the New Testament, God places a seal on his people to identify us and also as a symbol of his protection from wrath. A seal communicates a relationship with God security in God, and protection from God. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as a deposit, a seal, and earnest in the hearts of Christians. So the Holy Spirit seals us, and he is the down payment on your heavenly inheritance. That's what Christ promised for you. What you are anticipating in the future, and what you're hoping for in the future, what you're longing for in the future... It's the Holy Spirit who guarantees that for us, and he assures us of the promise that Christ has made and secured for us on the cross. In the Turning Point uh, Daily Devotional, David Jeremiah wrote at one point, he said, and I really like the way he puts this, he said, it would be nice to be told when we leave on a long trip something like this. I want you to know that you're going to reach your destination safely, and on schedule. Regardless of what happens in route, you may get lost, you may encounter a fierce rainstorm, you may have a flat tire. Don't worry. I am here to promise you that you will arrive. And then he draws the spiritual parallel and he says, We've been given such a promise by God concerning our spiritual journey. Don't let obstacles along the road to eternity shake your confidence in God's promise. The Holy Spirit is God's seal that you will arrive. We're going to face many dangers and many obstacles in front of us as we make our way toward that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And sometimes those challenges and those obstacles will cause us to begin to question God and we'll question our circumstances and we'll question if we're ever really truly going to make it home safely. And I'm here to tell you today that based on the authority of the Word of God, because you have been baptized by the Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, you've been brought from death to life, and the Holy Spirit has put His seal upon you for the day of redemption, and you and I are going to make it safely home. We're going to make it all the way. And the reason that we're going to make it safely home and the reason that we're going to make it all the way is because it's not dependent on our power and our strength. It's dependent on the power of God at work in us. And what God does for us is he claims us as his very own. 
and he adopts us into his family. And nobody can break the seal of God. The Holy Spirit identifies God's people as an inheritance. And he provides that inward assurance that we so desperately need that we belong to God. And he's going to finish the good work that he started in you. And then third, when we trust in Jesus, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are indwelled within. Now, I already referenced that God made his presence and his glory known in both the tabernacle and in the temple. God's glory was present with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God would meet with the people there. They would bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle and to the temple. They would express their worship to God. And there was one day a year that was particularly important. And that particularly important day was called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood of a slain animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a symbol that God was granting forgiveness to both the high priest and to the people. But here was the limitation. It had to be repeated again on that day, the next year, and then the year after that. But the Bible tells us that there came a time when there was a once and for all sacrifice that was given for our sins. That God sent his only son, the one who was sinless, who came to die for sinners. The one who knew no sin, but yet was willing to become sin for us. The one who was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. And he came as the perfect lamb of God. And he didn't offer up the sacrifice of an animal. He offered up the sacrifice of himself. And when he died for us, he died for us in our place. It was a substitutionary atonement. And when we trust in the atonement of Jesus that he made propitiation for our sins, what God does for us is he imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us. He credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account. And we are not trying to stand in the presence of God on our goodness or our righteousness or our deeds, which will always fall short. We are standing in the presence of God because of the righteousness of Jesus. And that was a once and for all sacrifice. It was done and finished when Jesus accomplished his work on the cross. And now, as followers of Jesus, we are referred to as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's where it begins to get uh, eminently practical for us because we understand not just what God has done for us in rescuing us and delivering us from death to life and sealing us so that our journey is guaranteed in the future, but he's indwelling us in the here and now when we come to faith in Christ. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 and 20 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Further, if we do not have the Spirit, we do not belong to God. Listen to what Romans 8 and verse 9 says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Let me make this very practical. At the moment 
you repent of your sins, and you turn to Jesus by faith. You're brought from death to life. You're sealed for the day of redemption, adopted into God's family, and the Spirit of God comes and takes residence up in your life. The Spirit of God dwells within you. The Christian faith is about life with God. That's what it's about. It's about life with God. That's like the point of the whole deal. And if we're just living this existence to to look respectable in some religious form and to be good and decent people, and we're missing out on the entire spiritual aspect of what God has done, we're missing out on what it means to be Christians. And did you know that we can go through the motion, the motions as individuals and just do things because other people are doing them and because we think they're the right thing to do? And not experience life with God? What a tragedy that would be. Did you know that churches can go through the motions and do a lot of good things and help a lot of people and yet not operate in the power of the Spirit? That cannot be. What we long to experience and what we pray for collectively and what we come together to experience is the power of God on our lives. We want to see the power of God that rescues people who are dead in their sins and brings them from death to life. We want to see the power of God that can restore broken families. We want to see the power of God that can rescue people from addictions. We want to see the power of God that can encourage people in their time of brokenness and in their time of grief. We want to experience the power of God in our lives, and we want to live life with God. And that's what being a disciple is all about. And I think a lot of people are missing it. And the reason I know a lot of people are missing it is they treat God as a product to be consumed or just something convenient to do if they don't have anything better to do. And their faith in God is ultimately, in reality, expendable to them. And it's evidenced by how a lot of people live. They say a lot of the right things. They would agree with a lot of the right principles. But when it comes down to it, is the Spirit of God at work in their lives? Is is He at work in our lives? Because that's central to the whole deal. I like the way Andrew Murray put it in a book he wrote on the Holy Spirit in the 19th century. He said, man was created by God for nothing less and nothing else than this indwelling. God brought creatures into existence so that he might show forth and impart his divine goodness and glory in a way to them that they could understand. Just as an oil lamp has its light inside and through the globe it gives off light all around, so the love of God created man so that he might be the light of his life. Our natures, our wills, our inclinations, and our powers were all to be the vessels that would receive and hold and overflow with the blessed fullness of the life of God in us. As he does that, he produces the fruit of the Spirit in us and also gives us spiritual gifts in our service to God, which we'll go deeper into as we move along. We have all the power we need to live for God, and we have the victory already accomplished in Christ. Look at this quote from Samuel Chadwick. 
He said the gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It was for this that all the rest was. The incarnation and crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, all the rest might be useless. But the essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of Christ. Through faith, you are baptized by the Spirit of God, brought from death to life, sealed for the day of redemption, and indwelled within. I close with this. There's a pastor by the name of David Hansen. And he told a little story about where he lived. And he said, I live near a river. He said, fish live in it. And the willowy river bottom is home to mice and mountain lions. He said, from the kitchen window, I watch bald eagles and ospreys and golden eagles and hawks. He said, these birds of prey ride the wind. Doesn't take much energy on their part. They soar on the wind, catching the currents. Birds of prey seek thermals, columns of warm air that rise from the earth, filled with energy. The birds glide on the heated currents of the air. And from their higher place, they can see more ground and they can fly longer and farther. And then he makes a spiritual comparison. He said, the spirit lifts us, gives us vision so that we can see what God is doing in his kingdom gives us wisdom for direction and purpose in our lives. And he gives us the power to bring it about so that his work becomes a reality in us and through us. This in part is what life in the spirit and spirit-filled life is all about. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. Maybe you've never had that, that experience of being born again through repentance and faith in Jesus. Today would be an awfully good day for your salvation. If you'd be willing to repent and believe, God will do a spiritual work in you that he alone can do. He'll bring about the transformation as you say yes to Jesus. Follower of Jesus, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're, maybe you're experiencing power in your life right now. And the reality of who God is and what it means to live life with God is, is fresh for you right now because you've been in the Word and you've been praying and, and you've been experiencing this for yourself. And I just encourage you and say, continue on. Just keep moving forward. Just keep progressing in your walk with Jesus. And he'll help you to grow to be more like him. But I know enough to know that in a group this size and probably people that are gathering with us online as well, there's some folks that are feeling dry. They might even feel like they're out in the wilderness somewhere. They're not experiencing that powerful life with God. And today, your life could just be a prayer of repentance away from true change. And God can help you to be where you need to be in your life with him. You see, the Holy Spirit knows everything about you. 
Remember, he's the one that convicts and converts. He's the one who convicts us when we are Christians of things that we do wrong. He works through our conscience. And we can grieve him. And we can quench his work in our lives. And any of those things, if they're true in your life, they can change today and you can walk out of here in a renewed relationship with God. God is so patient. He's so merciful. He's so loving. And he's welcoming you to, to experience fullness in him if you only trust him. Lean into who you are in Christ. Father, we thank you today that we don't have to uh, go through a pedestrian Christian experience where it seems uh, dry and ordinary and just going through the motions. We don't have to experience the Christian life as spectators or consumers. We can experience it in real time every moment of every day through your indwelling presence. I pray that'd be the case for our church. I pray these four weeks as we focus on the, the work of the Holy Spirit, that it would be a time of it'd be a time of renewal and empowering for our church. That you'd give us a freshness about us as we continue to move forward. And that we'd see you at work in people's lives around us. We give this time of close and response over to you, and we ask you now that you would work as you see fit, and we'll give you the glory for any good that comes from it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.